0: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
1: I wanted to show by example that it is a good and joyful thing to make good meals for yourself. If I had the intention of expanding horizons, it was really just thinking of yourself as a worthy person to be generous to.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam.
3: And I'm your other host, June Thomas.
2: June, we just had Thanksgiving. Christmas looms. Mm. We're all kind of trapped at home anyway. This is definitely a time of year when we're all thinking about food. And so Clancy Miller is sort of the ideal guest for right now. Can you tell me about her?
3: Yeah, so Clancy Miller, who we just heard from, is a Cordon Bleu-trained pastry chef and food writer. In 2016, she published a really appealing cookbook called Cooking Solo. Did you hear how I said cookbook there? Because I had to really overcome every part of me that says cookbook. (laughs) Um, Her cookbook is called Cooking Solo, The Joy of Cooking for Yourself. And she's also a journalist, mostly about food and travel. And I really enjoyed a piece that she wrote for The New York Times last summer about Georgia Gilmore, who fed and funded the Montgomery Buzz Boycott, which was part of The Times' overlooked series of obits that they should have published when the person died, but didn't. And this year, Clancy has spent a lot of time launching something new. She raised money for and has been assigning and editing and willing into being for the culture, a new magazine celebrating black women in food and wine, which will launch at the beginning of 2021.
2: So... While I listened to you and Clancy discuss creativity and food and the food media business, I was, appropriately enough, making my kids their school lunches for the next day. I I was very proud of myself. I turned some leftover beans and rice and steak into quesadillas. I sliced up those tiny little Persian cucumbers into matchsticks. I packed up grapes and Cheez-Its, which have been a favorite around here lately. June, are you someone who, as I do, takes pleasure in cooking?
3: Oh, Roman, I wish I could say that I was. What you just described sounds absolutely amazing. You are clearly a jazz improviser in the kitchen, which is something I am very envious of. I take no pride in saying this, but I am a kitchen shirker. I love to eat. I have a relatively adventurous palate, but I am not someone whose creativity extends to the kitchen. I'm a very appreciative eater, though.
2: Well, you know, there are always dishes to be done, right? (laughs) I was really struck by the guiding principle of Clancy's book, which is called Cooking Solo, as you mentioned. The idea that cooking, even if it's just for yourself, is worth it. Because you, all of us, are worth the care and attention that a good meal requires. That's so lovely and it's so different from the way we talk in this culture about time as a commodity and how everything has to be efficient and you have to buy like pre-chopped garlic Mm -hmm. or something because you can't waste even 30 seconds preparing something
3: yeah I so agree her book is full of joy like whether it's about the benefits of travel or the pleasure of shopping for the ingredients that you really like for the dishes you love and the book is refreshingly free from shoulds like she wants everyone to eat good food but she's not preachy or scoldy it's just that she wants readers to like, invest in their own health and happiness and to support a system that makes quality food sustainable. So it's very refreshing that way.
2: This week, the task falls to me. If you're listening and liking what you're hearing, please think about becoming a Slate Plus member. Those who are already members will hear a little more from June's conversation with Clancy Miller this week, one of the benefits of membership. You can get two weeks free right now. Just go to slate.com/working plus. All right now let's hear June's conversation with Clancy Miller.
3: Who are you and what do you do?
1: I am Clancy Miller and I am a writer. I'm the author of Cooking Solo, The Fun of Cooking for Yourself, and I'm the editor-in-chief and founder of For the Culture, a magazine celebrating black women and femme in food and wine.
3: I wanted to talk to someone in the world of food this week because the episode will run around Thanksgiving, a time when our obsession with food, which is pretty considerable most times, is really gets extra. Uh, I'm very curious about the creative process around cookbooks, But before we get to the origin story of your 2016 book, Cooking Solo, The Joy of Cooking for Yourself, can you tell me, did you always want to be making food and writing about food for a living? No, Um,
1: I am a person who took a while to figure out what she wanted to do. So I, I, um, when I graduated from college, I was a history major, I kind of, minored in film and French. I was obsessed with films. I still am. <laughs> My history degree was with a concentration in African-American studies and also Middle Eastern studies, because I've always been really fascinated with the Middle East. So I part of me wanted to work for an NGO. And so that's actually what I ended up doing right after college, working for an international NGO because I wanted to apply some of the things that I had learned in school to a job. But I also knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. (laughs) So I did a lot of things outside of work, like take editing classes, acting classes, and also cooking classes. And the cooking classes were kind of surprisingly the thing that stuck. I knew I loved food, but I wasn't Um, I didn't really have a lot of clarity. And then from that, I started apprenticing on the weekends in a restaurant. And that was the first time I showed up to work on time. It was the first time (laughs) I felt stimulated. And it really gave me a lot of information about myself. Like, oh, I like working with my hands. I love food. I like the collaborative process of working in a kitchen. I already knew I loved restaurants because I grew up going to restaurants a lot with my family. (laughs) But um, that experience kind of crystallized something for me and helped me to realize I wanted to go to a cooking school.
3: Becoming a chef feels like an unusually rigorous training program for the creative sphere. I mean, it takes a long time to become a good writer, but most people don't learn by serving a formal apprenticeship, which is, as I understand it, still how a lot of culinary education happens. Um, did training as a chef, and we should say you trained at the Cordon Bleu in, in Paris, affect your creative process outside the realm of food? I mean, it, did it change the way you approach writing, for example?
1: Attending Le Colon Bleu and specializing specifically in pastry helped to develop an aesthetic sensitivity, I would say, huh. because the chefs were always saying, you know, you eat with your eyes. So you have to make it pretty, you have to make it nice, you have to make it soigné, as the <laughs> French would say. And That really definitely was something I paid attention to while I was a student at Le Cordon Bleu. But then even more so when I finished and I did another stage in a bakery and then a stage at Thayvon, which is, you know, this at the time it was a three star restaurant. I don't think it's a three star Michelin anymore, but you had to be really on your toes there visually with everything. Um, I can't say that that has affected my writing just because I think it's a different skill set to be visually attentive to how your product looks versus writing, which I think of as really thinking very hard (laughs) and long and trying to come up with something to say clearly, you know?
3: Yeah. You mentioned, uh, that you did a stage at a place can you just kind of clarify for those of us who are not familiar what that means so a stage
1: you could use apprenticeship as well in french the verb is to stage so <laughs> stage yeah. or stagiaire i was a stage meaning i was basically having an apprenticeship which is an unpaid working experience. Yeah. So I was working full time in a restaurant and a bakery without being paid. And it was for my benefit to learn about what goes on in the kitchen and to learn from some of the best.
3: Was write a cookbook always part of your life plan?
1: Not at all. I have to say when I first got to Le Coron Bleu, and even when I finished Le Coron Bleu, I really thought I would open a pastry shop or like a salon de thé or Mm. something. I wasn't sure I'd open a restaurant, but I thought I would open a place of business where I would make sweets and sell Mm. them Mm. (laughs) in some form. And after my stages, my experience working in kitchens full time, I realized I, and I was very young. Like I was, I had recently finished college Mm. and I was tired all the time after working really long hours. And I realized, okay, well, first of all, I tried to get a job at Taivon, like a paid job. Mm. And I, they didn't really have any openings. And the chef was like, you're great, but you're also kind of slow. (laughs) And I was working as hard as I could. So I realized this, maybe the, professional kitchen life isn't for me and I ended up getting a job at Le Coron Bleu in their recipe development department because mm-hmm. I wanted to still be in the world of food but also figure out how else I could be in the world of food besides being in a kitchen and that's when I started to learn about recipe writing and then kind of put it together that, oh, okay, this is an option. I could write cookbooks. It took a while because I thought I wanted to work for a magazine. I thought I wanted to do other things with the written word in food Mm.
3: before I got to cookbooks. Since you mentioned recipe development, that is something that I'm very, very curious about. What does the phrase developing a recipe, what does that mean?
1: It means having an idea that's I think where it starts out and it could be an idea like something you've had before that you want to make differently you know Mm -hmm. maybe you had it at a restaurant or you had it at a friend's house you didn't make it Mm -hmm. the point of inspiration could be elsewhere And so sometimes recipe development could be trying to figure out what did you like about that recipe and what is it that you want to change about it? You know, like how do you want to make it your own? Because otherwise it's kind of plagiarism. Although there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to food. Everybody's done some version of it probably. Um, But how can you make it authentically yours? Mm. A recipe that I actually haven't talked about much that comes to mind is this La
3: Dolce Vita cake. Oh my goodness. Now that's the recipe that you said, listen, this one is hard.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that recipe, it's like twofold. A part of it is inspired by a trip in Italy where I was visiting friends and um, just (laughs) stayed with a friend who she wanted me to call these friends of ours, mutual friends of ours, and they were just going to stop by for coffee. But the other friends understood that coffee meant cake. And so the friend I was staying with immediately once she knew they were going to be coming by starts baking a cake, <laughs> which I thought was the loveliest thing ever. <laughs> um, and I wanted to have recipes in Cooking Solo that were not exclusively for single people mm, i mm. wanted to have some recipes for you know you're single and you're inviting friends over so i was just like okay how do i take what i have made literally in cooking school and kind of mash it up with this moment that was so magical and lovely with friends with another delicious cake and kind of so it's kind of like an experiment that's mm-hmm. how i think of recipe development in its you know For scientists, they have to prove things over and over again in a laboratory, you know, through various forms of essays or testing. And so recipe development is very much the same. So you're crystallizing that idea into a product and you're trying to figure out what it is you want to make. But then you also have to make the thing over and over again to make sure that you know how to make it and can explain it and write yeah. the instructions clearly.
3: So you're, you're almost like setting a vibe as well as telling people, buy this, mix this, put it in the oven. You're also, part of it too, is is just kind of setting up a just an atmosphere. Yeah, that's kind of the head note. So the top part of the
1: recipe where somebody tells a story or tells you, you know, you really have to use this kind of flour or whatever. <laughs> mm.
2: We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Clancy Miller after this. We have a very special episode of Working coming soon. June, Isaac, and I will address listener questions on work matters big and small. If you need guidance or inspiration or anything else, please drop us a line at working@slate.com, at or give us an old-fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Clancy Miller.
3: I'm always struck uh, when reading cookbooks, and I have to say I am not, I don't do much cooking, but I like to buy cookbooks, right, because it's aspirational. They also often look great. It's a wonderful thing to, like, flip through and and live the life that you would love to live instead of the messier life that you actually live. (laughs) Um, But it strikes me as something uh, that's really a challenging project because you have to come up with the head notes and the vibe and a theme, first of all, which in yours is this great theme of the joy of cooking for yourself. Um, You have to develop the recipes and then you also have to kind of have a variety of different, in your book, different meals, different kinds of food. Which aspect of that process did you enjoy most and which was most challenging?
1: I'll start with the challenging part. Um, <laughs> it's hard to kind of get organized. The, you know, you have to be very methodical which I am naturally, but I'm not always naturally organized in terms of how my method comes out. So, you know, you have, like you mentioned, volume. You have, let's say, 100 recipes. And a lot of times I work with inspiration in terms of, oh, this sounds really cool. So I write notes on everything. And I do keep notebooks, but kind of just consolidating all of the information for each recipe for me was a challenge because I don't always confine myself to just one notebook. You know, if I, an idea comes up to me in the middle of the day and I'm out and about without my computer, it's going to go on whatever I have in my pocketbook <laughs> to write yeah. on. So just kind of getting all, everything organized for each recipe that was a challenge. The fun part, I held these kind of like focus groups for my recipes, which were basically dinner parties and brunches, where I would invite friends and basically test a whole bunch of recipes out on them to see if they liked them or what, what they thought. Mm. That was really fun for me because the act of writing any kind of book, I think, including a cookbook is one that includes a lot of isolation you're doing so much at least before you get to the photo shoot part which hopefully involves other people but the writing part involves so much alone time that it was nice to invite people over to kind of participate in my process
3: cooking solo because its theme is who is going to be making this thing rather than a particular style of cooking. Um, So I was curious about how you calibrated, if you like, how difficult or easy or the mix of easy to difficult recipes to include. Um, Like, how did you decide on that balance?
1: I didn't even really think about a balance of easy to difficult. I thought about how I cook. Most of the recipes are recipes that I have cooked for myself several times, or at the very least, a few times. I have like a duck shepherd's pie that is not a regular thing that I cook, but it's really delicious. So I really thought about what are the kinds of things that I eat as a single person. And then I thought about recipes that I thought I absolutely have to include. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the duck shepherd's pie or you know desserts that mean a lot to me and a couple so that means that there are some things that are a little more I'm not going to say challenging but maybe have more steps to them but that's really it I just thought ooh this has to be in here even though you know it might take an hour and a half to make
3: when you were writing the book, um, did you have a particular buyer or reader in mind, a, someone a particular level of, of skill or anything like that? I think I just thought single people,
1: like ages 18 and above, 18 to 100. If you have a kitchen and cook and live by yourself or mostly live by yourself, this cookbook is for you. That is literally what I was thinking. I probably you know, getting more specific. I live in a city, I live in New York. So I was thinking, I definitely was thinking of New Yorkers. I was thinking of city dwellers, just because for me, the act of cooking involves kind of wandering around in farmer's markets. And, you know, I personally really do enjoy going to small little gourmet shops and spice shops and specialty stores. And I feel like it's easy to do that when you live in a city and you, you know, are used to not getting around by car and things are maybe a little closer to you. But mostly I thought 18 and up has kitchen lives alone. But I also (laughs) thought like city dwellers
3: who are single. I also want to say that, um, you know, I don't live alone, but we don't eat giant meals. And, you know, I think a lot of Recipe books—the recipes are all for six or eight servings or something like that—and of course you can you can do the math. But I would say that a lot of the um, recipes uh, that you offer, you know, would would um, also be very suited for couples or two people who live together too. Um, it seems to me that there's quite a psychological element to writing a cookbook as well as providing recipes and telling stories about food, you're encouraging readers to expand their food horizons. Again, to what extent was that a part of your process, if indeed it was to any extent?
1: There may be some aspect of travel in Cooking Solo, and this is kind of the joy of writing your first book or your especially your first cookbook because you can put so much of yourself into it and you can put so much of your own story into it. So I wanted to kind of not really give people permission but show by example that it is a good and joyful thing to make good meals for yourself. And it's actually pretty simple and you can have these little moments that remind you of trips you took or, you know, by extension, you can do some armchair traveling through a recipe. And so I think I, if I had the intention of expanding horizons, it was really just thinking of yourself as a worthy person to be generous to, and then also, thinking of cooking for yourself as having kind of like a mini adventurous side benefit, you know?
3: Yeah, no, I get that. Um, So last December, uh, I believe it was, you launched a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo to launch For the Culture, a biannual printed food magazine that celebrates black women in food and wine. And you wrote, the stories in For the Culture will be about black women throughout the diaspora, written by black women, and photographed and illustrated by black women. It will be the first magazine of its kind. First, that sounds amazing. Second, why did you take on that project? I took on the project
1: for a couple of reasons. I had been, a few years ago, offered the opportunity to guest edit a food magazine and for that guest editing position to be an issue of the magazine that was going to be solely focused on black women. And I was very intrigued by that and got really excited and started reaching out to people. And then for various reasons, unfortunately, that possibility kind of fizzled Mm -hmm. out and it didn't come to fruition. But I got so excited during that process of reaching out to people that I thought, I still wanna do this. And I also feel like maybe I will be letting people down if I don't Mm -hmm. because by this point I had had several, several, several conversations. And then I also have continuously felt that there frankly aren't enough pieces written by black women, Mm -hmm. period, in Mm -hmm. the food landscape, in food media. And I feel like Fortunately, over the past few years and definitely over the course of 2020, there's definitely been a reckoning and, you know, I feel like most people recognize that now, but I just felt like there's a need and this isn't happening and it's not happening in a way that I think really makes a statement. And I also thought if I don't do this, somebody else will, and I'll be really upset that they got to it first.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know you raised about $40,000. Um, I'm guessing that the pandemic messed with the magazine schedule in some way. Where does For the Culture stand right now? Well, I'm excited to
1: say that we have, with the exception of maybe two pieces of photography, we have basically the entire content, so the magazine in, which is super exciting. And so a little bit later this month, everything will go to the designer to be laid out and following that, the printer. So fingers crossed. <laughs> um, Cause there certainly have been delays. I'm really hoping that the magazine will be out first thing in 2021. So basically a year turnaround, which now that I think of it is way more realistic. When I started the crowdfunder. I had no idea that there would be a pandemic a few months later, and that absolutely has affected things, namely because it's affected me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it feels really good. I'm so honored that the people involved, these amazingly talented women involved have entrusted me with their stories because
3: there's some really wonderful work. How will people be able to find the magazine when it's out in 2021? The website
1: is ForTheCultureFoodMag.com, and people will be able to purchase the magazine there.
3: Obviously, you have had a lot of experience uh, writing about food, both for your cookbook, you've written for a lot of magazines and publications, but this is a different kind of uh, project. What was something that you learned while shepherding and kind of creating an entire new publication? I
1: think what I've learned the most is the importance of giving people time, but also the importance of um, kind of being a little strict with oneself and enforcing schedules, which has been extremely difficult during the pandemic. I also wear an entirely different hat as a writer outside of food. And so I've essentially been juggling work. And so, and a lot of people are juggling a lot at this time. This year has been the year of juggling. So it has helped me to understand the importance of time and that everything does actually take time. And you have to be flexible, but you also have to have a schedule. And at some point you have to adhere to a schedule, um, That's probably the biggest thing. And then kind of just learning all of the parts that go into creating something like a magazine, the fact that you have to bring in the designer at this point, you have to bring in a copy editor at this point. And that's something that I did not, I, you know, I had no idea of how the timetable would work out. And so that I've been learning a lot about time, (laughs) time management.
4: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: June, at the top of your conversation, we heard Clancy talk about her own memory of going to restaurants with her parents when she was small. And that really struck me because our relationship to food is really intimate and it's really rooted in how you grew up. You know, when my own children were babies, I had a friend with older kids who urged me to teach them how to love food. And that's advice that I really took to heart. You know, you definitely get the kid that you get, and some kids only want to eat buttered pasta, <laughs> but I've loved taking my kids to restaurants and watching them eat, like, broccoli rob or spicy Indian food or baba ganoush or whatever. It just makes me so happy, and it sounds like that's where Clancy learned how to care about what she fed herself.
3: Yeah, I really enjoyed learning about her family's attitude to food and also travel, uh, which comes up repeatedly in the book. Um, her parents make it into many of the head notes that she talked about, and they clearly played a huge role in forming her love of cooking and eating. I grew up in a very bad food family. Um, I know this will sound like hyperbole, but I promise it is 100% true. Every hot meal we ate was cooked in the chip pan. Uh, That is to say, in a deep fat fryer, so egg and chips, chip butty, pie and chips, the very best meal that exists, chop and chips. It was delicious, but it was not the most varied diet. So it wasn't only that I didn't eat any foreign food, so-called. I really didn't eat anything other than something and chips until I went to college. I have made up for it since, though.
2: I really liked hearing from Clancy about her efforts as a writer and now editor. You know, it was reassuring for me to hear that working in this arena is a challenge to her, right? Because she's a pastry chef. Like, so often people who do two things, like being a chef and also a writer and editor, they just make it look so easy.
3: Yeah, I appreciated that so much. And it's maybe because cooking is so physical, like my friends who are chefs, they all have those burned and scarred hands, and it's just obviously hot and sweaty in a professional kitchen. So perhaps that makes it easier to just kind of acknowledge that cooking and writing and podcasting and all this creative stuff is work, and work is often hard.
2: It's exciting to hear Clancy's plans for For the Culture, which is her magazine, Mm. Our food media really needs a reset, as so much of our media does. And the idea that Clancy just decided to do this big thing, to seize control and make the thing that she was missing in the culture is kind of inspiring.
3: It absolutely is. She is really putting her time and her skill and focus and I think her whole life right now on a project that is undoubtedly like really complex and daunting. And I was struck by how appropriate it was that the project was crowdfunded. Um, We often talk about collaboration on this show uh, and clearly professional kitchens are collaborative. A lot of people have a hand in making what ends up on diners plates. So it seems right that the work of funding and indicating interest and support should also be shared. At the centre of it though is Clancy and I have so much respect for her stepping up and doing the work. I just can't wait to see the magazine.
2: So, June, we just had Thanksgiving. What did you do? How did you mark the occasion? And and did you leave this conversation with Clancy with any new insight on how to think about the food that you consume in your own household?
3: I am slightly, but only slightly, I admit. Embarrassed to say that we bought all of our food pre-prepared, every last bite of it, from the mashed potatoes to the turkey slices to the gravy to the apple pie. And I was very thankful for the people who made all those dishes and, of course, that I could afford them. Uh, But cooking solo really did have an effect on me. It did make me determined to do better next year to make some things from scratch, mostly because she made cooking seem like fun and something that would would kind of, you know, loosen you up after a day of working, uh, sitting at your desk or whatever. So uh, next year I'll do better. How was your Thanksgiving? Did you make every last scratch of it?
2: No, I also threw money at the problem (laughs) while grateful for the fact that I have the money to throw. Um, My kids and I collaborated on corn pudding, which is something that we traditionally serve at our Thanksgiving table where we usually see 14 to 20 people, big Mm -hmm. and small. Um, This year it's just the four of us. And so I got a turkey breast that was pre-prepared. I got Brussels sprouts and mashed potatoes that were pre-prepared. I got pies that were pre-prepared. I do so much cooking in this house. I have two Mm. kids. They eat constantly. We're sort of (laughs) at that point in their growth where we don't reliably have any leftovers after a meal. So I'm basically making a meal every night. And, you know, it's a holiday. I wanted to give myself a little bit of a break, and so I did.
3: I am so proud of you. Well done, Roman.
2: There's always another meal to be made. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And I'm gonna give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but most importantly, you'll be supporting the work that we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year and you can get a free two week trial now at slate.com slash working plus.
3: Thank you to Clancy Miller for being a fabulous guest, to Whitney Tessie, who provided some really valuable research, and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with a conversation between Isaac Butler and the novelist and playwright Ayad Akhtar. Until then, get back to work!